Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 18. Hear these words now. I appeal, to your, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, for now no one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ might lose its power. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for us and for all of God's people. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for servants like Paul, whom were inspired by you to write these words, and who actually heeded that inspiration so that we can learn from these words today. So minister to us now in this place and help us, God, to know how we can better live as your people. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I've mentioned a few times, and I'm going to say it again, just at the risk of being repetitive and or Captain Obvious. But in my 39 years in this earth, I don't recall a time that I've ever seen this country or really even this world as polarized as it is, as encamped as it is, as, well, divided. Politically, we get entrenched into our Republican and Democrat echo chambers. And often our politicians egging on this behavior were of the, of the mindset of, well, you're either with me entirely or against me entirely. And if you disagree with me, then you are my enemy. You know, I get asked all the time by various people how I align on certain topics, whether we're talking about politics or whether we're talking about church doctrine, the book of discipline, the Bible. I mean, it, it, the list goes on and on. Well, I like to tell people that I'm somewhere in the middle of things, that for me it really just depends on the issue. And I really don't like people telling me what I should think about things either. I like to look at things from a lot of different angles to reach a, 
a decision on how I feel about it. And I use this approach whether we're talking about, again, church doctrine, politics, or whatever. First of all, I think about what might please God. And then I also think about, well, what's also ethical and moral and, you know, all of that. You know, I try to look at all different angles. I try to get both sides of the story, if you will, before I reach a decision. And did I mention I really don't like people telling me what I should and shouldn't think about things? So the opinions of other people, yeah, I'll listen, but that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them just because they say that. But I digress. But here's a question that I think it's good for us to reflect on. And again, whether we're talking about church doctrine, politics, or, or whatever. How often do these things really even matter? And just in the grand scheme, the big, the big picture, how often do these things, as my grandfather used to say, amount to a hill of beans? Is something that we disagree on, is it really, is it really a reflection on us as people? Now, I know sometimes the answer to that is yes. Sometimes it is a reflection on us as people. But more often than not, is it really? Is it a reflection on us as children of God? Fact of the matter is, it's rarely the case. It's rarely of anything of any eternal or long-term consequence. Because quite honestly, most of the time, our differences really don't matter all that much. And most people, if they really sit down and they listen to one another and they actually engage in dialogue instead of focusing in on that one thing that maybe they disagree upon, often they're going to find that they agree on a lot more than they disagree on. That's certainly been my experience throughout my life. If I have a disagreement with someone, well, we might debate that for a minute, but then we'll actually start talking to each other and start listening to one another. And we do find more often, than, or at least I find more often than not, that with so many of these people, I have so much more common ground than I would have actually originally thought because we disagree on this one thing, whatever it may be. You know, sadly, all of these divisions and all of this mentality of, of absolutes, again, you're either completely with me or you're completely against me, it, it drives wedges between people. It drives wedges between families and, yes, it even drives wedges between churches. Because let's just be honest, and I know this isn't always the case, but most of the time, these disagreements are really on non-essential things. And none of this makes God proud. But I can say this, anytime a church is divided, especially when a church is divided, you know who it does make proud? The enemy. He loves it when this kind of stuff happens. Because then he can creep in and, well, you know. How many times have you ever engaged in a debate around the dinner table? Has it ever turned ugly? Did it ever make you dread going to holidays and family functions because you thought this, that some relative of yours was going to say something that just was meant to just needle at you a little bit because you're bound to push your buttons. It's happened to me a few times, thankfully not often, but it does happen. You ever really thought about the damage this does to your heart and your soul when this occurs? 
or maybe even the damage that occurs to the other, um, to the hearts and souls of other people that are having maybe even to witness this. You know, these experiences do cause great harm. And when divisions occur in churches and turn ugly, it can also cause harm to our witness. In a way, we're making Jesus look bad. We as his people are his representatives here on earth. And if people see Christians fighting, well, what are they going to think about God? And we're warned about these kind of divisions in Scripture. And that's a lot of what Paul talks about in a lot of his writings and certainly what he addressed here in 1 Corinthians 1. But how often do we try to fight these divisions off? I don't have to tell you that the United Methodist Church is in the midst of a very trying time right now. It's a, very, it's a um, critical moment in our history. And let me just sidetrack for a second and say and remind you all that a lot of what you read about the United Methodist Church in the news is not exactly the way it is. That's not exactly the way it went, including that article that floated around about the church that supposedly asked all the old people to leave. That's not really what happened. If you want to talk about it, we can, and I'll, I'll tell you what actually happened, but it's not the way the, the media framed it by any means. But any time the United Methodist Church makes news for something like that, or any time um, that we make the news for our debate about human sexuality and you know anything else, really, There's an argument that can be made that this strife that exists is harming our mission and it's harming our witness. And in some instances it can. If we just dwell on those differences, then yes, it will. But I'm thankful to say that there are people like you all who have said we're not going to be sidetracked by this kind of stuff and we're going to continue doing kingdom work. The fact that we have the food bag ministry through Wesley House and through and who we have uh, blessed so many families with already, that is a testament to that. Of not allowing these kind of divi- these divisions to occur and allowing them to sidetrack us. That's proof positive that we don't have to let these divisions be prevalent in our church and impact our work. And that's really the important thing. And I think, especially here, what I can see is that we do a really good job of not getting lost in endless debates and being so stuck in our positions that we forget to show grace. I'm thankful for that. Because our primary job is not to be correct. Our primary job is not to have the right doctrine or the right political stances. As God's people, our primary job is to spread the gospel to live the gospel, and to love people. And I don't have to tell you that we are a church made up of different people from different backgrounds who have different experiences, all of which have helped to shape how we view everything. And we may have different opinions on things. I'm sure if I asked a sampling of you all of what you thought about an issue, I'd get at least five or six different answers depending on who I asked. But I'm thankful that we don't allow our differences of opinions at the end of the day to distract us from the fact that we are on the same team. And ultimately, we all want the same things. If only all of of God's people would take such a lesson and such a mindset, how different this world might be. 
My prayer is that we continue to understand and they understand as well that if we are truly God's people, no matter what, we are going to be of one mind and one purpose. And that, of course, is about things of the kingdom. The Corinthian church was rife with conflict. If you know anything about their history, you know that conflict pretty much sums up the, the history, especially the early history of the Christian church in Corinth. And especially in the Corinthian church, because that church grew so much so fast that it was almost hard to keep up with. Corinth, just to give you a reminder, was a place where paganism had really taken root. It was kind of the epicenter of pagan religions in the Roman world. But then people like Paul and Apollos and, and all these other missionaries started coming through. And they started spreading Christianity and they started planting churches and these churches started taking off. Well, this church here in Corinth had gotten so big and so large that they were having to meet in several different homes because they didn't, it's not like they had a church building like this to meet in on a Sunday morning. They had to make do with what they had. And Craig Keener kind of talks about the dynamics of this in a commentary he wrote on this passage. He, he, he writes this, For the first three centuries of its existence, the church met mainly in homes. Those belonging to more well-to-do members of the congregation could naturally hold the most people. Because the size of these homes were limited in size, then the congregations were forced to meet in different house churches. Therefore, divisions easily arose among them. In other words, if they were having to meet in several different places, they were also having to employ several different teachers. Teachers who had different takes on the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul and the teachings of whomever. In fact, they probably had different takes on everything. And so conflict arose and that threatened to tear the church apart. And that's why Paul wrote his letter is to try to prevent that from happening. You know, Paul gets right to the point. He gave them a little greeting and then he gets right to the point here in this passage that we read today. And basically what he's saying is, I know what's going on. Now y'all need to stop it. And here's why. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that a devotion to a teacher is all well and good. And in the Roman world at that time, it was kind of an expected thing for people to, be, to show a very strong devotion to philosophical teachers. So that naturally went over into Christianity. But Paul is reminding them that it is not a teacher like himself or Apollos or Peter or whomever that really is the root of their faith. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the root of their faith is Jesus Christ. And rather than maintaining a focus on Jesus, though, what's actually gone on is the Corinthians are wanting to focus on these teachers like Apollos or Paul or Peter. And Paul is warning them of what can happen as a result of such tribalism. Tribalism can basically be summed up like this. It's being so stuck in your beliefs, whatever those beliefs may be about, again, religion, politics, or, or whatever. But you're so stuck on those beliefs that it impacts how you behave and people that kind of think alike on these things, they kind of band together. Now, this can be a good thing. 
But in this case, and in many cases in our modern world when tribalism occurs, this was a bad thing. Because it elevated devotion of a teacher or to a teacher above the gospel. Just like when we get in our various tribes where we can elevate a certain ideology over our devotion to Jesus. And just like the Corinthians, when that happens, when we elevate anything over the gospel, when we elevate anything over God, it's idolatrous. It's sin. It's worshiping a false god. Anything can truly be an idol. Anything. Even our denominational devotion can be an idol if we let it. Our political beliefs can be an idol if we let it. Truly anything can be an idol if we're willing to be more devoted to it than we are to God himself. Because that's exactly the kind of behavior that we kind of teeter the line on so often in this world today. We fight, we separate ourselves into different camps. We call them traditionalist, we call them progressive, we call them Republican, we call them Democrat, and, and on and on and on. And when we get so entrenched in these camps, what happens? Discord, drama, fighting, hatred. Need I continue? John Wesley wrote commentary on the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's what he had to say about a portion of this passage. And that there be no schisms among you, no alienation of affection from each other. Is this word ever taken in any other sense in the scriptures? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. But that ye be joined in the same mind, affections, desires, and judgment, touching all the grand truths of the gospel. Now note that terminology that Wesley used there. Alienation of affection. Quite simply, that means you are willingly and intentionally withholding love from your neighbor. You know what the opposite of love is? It's hate. And that's what John Wesley is warning the, reading, the reader of his commentary about. It's saying that that's what Paul is talking about, is a warning against hatred. And that's exactly what happens when we allow ourselves to become so entrenched in our camps and our echo chambers. And again, whatever we want to call them, whatever name we want to give them. It causes us to fail to love our neighbor. And Paul, his message is very simple. He's going, stop it! Got y'all's attention, didn't it? But that's basically what he's saying. He's wanting to bang on his desk and he's wanting to yell at them as if he's a dad yelling at his kids going, now y'all stop it now. And Paul is reminding them that we are not united by the teachings of a teacher other than Jesus Christ. And that our devotion to him should be supreme to anything else. And he asks a rhetorical question in verse 13 when he says, Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. Paul is saying this, 
Don't elevate your devotion to a teacher. Don't elevate your beliefs. Don't elevate your ideology and your doctrine above Jesus Christ. Because that, my friends, is sin. And when we allow our preferences and our biases to dictate whom and how we love, that's sin. And that's what Paul is warning the Corinthians against, and by extension, us. Because when Christ told us to love our neighbor as ourselves, if you look in any translation of the Bible, you're not going to find a footnote there saying, but, or a subsection called exceptions, or a subsection going, except these people. No, you're not going to find that. The clear thing is this, is to love everyone, period. Put aside your biases, put aside your preferences, whatever that is. Put all that aside. None of that matters because if you're devoted to Jesus Christ, you're going to carry out his teachings regardless of what anybody else says. Paul is imploring the Corinthians not to forget who they are and more importantly, whose they are. To put aside their differences and to concentrate and really remember those things that unite them rather than those things that separate them. So as I said a few moments ago, the Corinthians were at a critical point in their history. They were just getting off the ground as a church. This strife could have made or broken them. The same goes against for the United Methodist Church. Our differences of of opinion on interpretation of what the scriptures say about human sexuality has pitted brother against brother, sister against sister, and church against church, caucus group against caucus group. And I don't know about you, I don't know how much you've been keeping up with it, but as a pastor, it seems like I'm inundated by it. I'm tired. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the discord. I'm tired of the he said, she said, and I'm tired of you if you're either with me or against me. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of us forgetting as a church, and again, I'm speaking collectively of the whole thing. I've I'm grown tired of the church forgetting who we are and whose we are. I've grown tired of forgetting that our first command that Jesus Christ gave to us was to love God and then to love our neighbors, period. I'm tired of us forgetting that. I'm tired of devotion to political parties being more important than loving our neighbor. I'm tired of it. And as God's people, my hope is that you're tired of it too. And my hope is that you will be willing to rise above it. To love dangerously and to give extravagantly. And also to give unmerited, unlimited grace just like God does. Even to people with whom you disagree. And I hope not only this body gathered here would be willing to do that, but the entire United Methodist Church, and indeed the entire Christian church, would be willing to do that. Because the truth of the matter is this. Someone disagreeing with you on things like church doctrine, biblical interpretation, politics, or whatever, that does not mean that they love Jesus any less than you. 
Let me say that again. If they don't agree with you on politics, if they don't agree with you on biblical interpretation or anything else, that does not mean that they love Jesus any less than you do. It means they see things differently. Now understand, I don't mean anything that's of an essential doctrine, like the divinity of Christ, for example. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. If there's disagreement there, then there needs to be a deeper conversation. But on most anything else, at the end of the day, it's a difference of opinion and nothing more. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. The essentials are God reigns and he made everything. Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins, died on the cross and rose again three days later. Christ was the divine son of God and also fully human. Those are among the essentials. Most everything else is opinion and nothing more. So why hate each other over a difference of opinion? The sooner we stop with this mentality as a church, the better. John Wesley gave a sermon once called The Catholic Spirit. And, and first of all, let me say that Catholic in the sense that he used it is the same sense in which we use the Apostles' Creed. It's just an old word meaning universal or worldwide. He said this, and he was um, drawing his sermon from a passage out of 2 Kings 10. He said, if your heart be as my heart, give me thy hand. I do not mean be of my opinion. You need not. I do not expect or desire it. Neither do I mean I will be of your opinion. I cannot. It does not depend on my choice. I can no more think than I can see or hear as I will. Keep you your opinion and I mine. And that as steadily as ever. You need not even endeavor to come over to me or bring me over to you. I do not desire you to dispute those points or to hear or to speak one word concerning them. Let all opinions alone on one side and the other. If your heart is as my heart, give me your hand. Never forget who we are and whose you are. And never forget who the church belongs to. And never elevate anything over the gospel. And certainly never elevate anything over your devotion to God. And do no harm. My friends, I offer this to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.